This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. My name is Brian Herrera, and I am Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this next cycle of episode that begins today, I return to the roots of the podcast as I begin to use it as a space to offer my unedited and unmediated thoughts about shows I see. I don't know if this is going to become a regular or semi-regular podcast. I don't know anything right now. In fact, when I got up this morning, I didn't know I was going to record this episode. But more and more as I thought about it, I realized that there are ways in which I think um, this podcast in its original form was designed for me to capture my thoughts about the shows I encountered. And so I expect in this next cycle of episodes that I will continue to do that, offer my improvisatory, uh, ruminative reviews and reflections upon shows that I see. I suspect I will focus primarily on shows that I'm seeing in a remote theatrical context. And that is indeed the way I will begin this week's episode, begin this new cycle of episodes, kicking it off with my reflections upon my experiences of This American Wife, the latest production by Fake Friends, um, which presented on stellar and streaming screens uh, over the last few weeks. So without further ado, I'm going to jump on in. It's raw, it's rough, it's ready. And here we go to the new new cycle, new series, new whatever of Stinky Lulu Says, in this case, what Stinky Lulu said has to say about, and this is what Stinky Lulu has to say about this American wife. This American Wife, conceived and written by Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley, directed by Rory Pelsu, dramaturgy by Kat Rodriguez and Ariel Silbert, featuring Joaquim Dante Powell alongside Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley in a production presented by Fourth Wall Theatrical in association with Fake Friends and Jeremy O'Harris. This American Wife was a, what I might call an original digital or remote performance presented live uh, in a hybrid live presentation and uh, including including pre-taped or pre-filmed video segments uh, for not quite 10 consecutive days, but um, but running uh, starting on May 20th, 2021, and running with one night off up until Saturday, uh, May 29th. And so uh, this production, which ran about 90 minutes and uh, was uh, accessible for streaming via the Stellar platform, is a production um, that is building on the momentum of Fake Friends. Fake Friends, you may remember, is the producing organization, uh, the artistic collaborative, uh, uh, Ariel Siebert, Kat Rodriguez, Michael Breslin, and Patrick Foley, who together have built a number of of the more remarkable events over the last sort of what we would call the, the pandemic season of 2020 and 2021. Notably, Fake Friends launched a production called Circle Jerk, which became something of a phenomenon in the fall of 2020, uh, having an extended run, uh, having an explosive media media presence and discovery, one of the only breakout shows of the pandemic era, one that crossed out of the sort of the tight orbit of its production, of, of the sort of the production network, the network of, of the people involved in the production and burst out, uh, crossing, um, crossing into different, uh, spaces, causing, um, uh, a great deal of conversation and, uh, 
and its extended run allowed that to proceed. And then it ended up becoming one of the more notable and acknowledged productions of the year. Uh, it was um, one of the nominees in the Drama League, uh, Drama League's 2020 awards cycle. Um, and also, of course, the, and it led to Patrick Foley and Michael Bresnan being tapped in the adaptation of Ratusical or the TikTok Ratatouille musical as the primary uh, scriptwriter's dramaturgical presences in that. And so it, it is unsurprising that then um, building on the momentum in the context of the pandemic year, that fake friends would reconvene with core collaborators like Roy Prelsu and then bring into the fold um, Joaquin Dante Powell to stage another work, a once again, like Circle Jerk. It's prior built upon a a script or what we might call a script that had been developed prior to the pandemic, but now is being developed uh, more thoroughly in the context of the pandemic for presentation in what uh, fake friends are are among the most influential pioneers of, of this new mode of remote performance, which is um, a sort of what the drama league called a uh, remote theatrical event or the digital theatrical event. And so what I'd like to do is to talk about this American Wife, to gather my admittedly fairly incoherent thoughts about it, um, because I do think it's one of those pieces that um, is marks uh, an important juncture in the work of this early of this of this collaborative ensemble, this experimental ensemble that I think is going to become an influential presence on the theatrical scene, either directly or indirectly in the years to come. And so I wanted to take a moment to gather my thoughts. Uh, and so what I will do is I'll do so um, by by offering some perspective on the three main things I'm thinking about. One is the um, title and the premise of This American Wife um, and how it relates to the complex history of what we might call um, the ascendant genres in the 21st century of intimate, uh, intimate produced performance. Okay. Uh, the next section, I'm going to talk a little bit about the 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 genre shifting, the sort of the ways in which this um, the production sort of operates in three what I would call movements or registers, and to think about what the implications of those three movements or registers are. And then finally, I'm going to conclude my thoughts by reflecting a bit on what um, what was most striking to me in my second viewing of the production. Uh, to to be clear, I saw the production in its second live presentation on Friday, May. Uh, May 21st, 2021, and again in its concluding uh, per, uh, final performance on uh, Saturday, uh, May 29th. And it was really in the second viewing that I became very clear, uh, something I had basically missed the first time around, of how important the register of horror of horror as a genre was for uh, uh, my understanding and my experience of this piece. So I'll talk first about uh, reality television and intimacy media, and then I'll go into sort of what I find to be the queer structure of the piece, and then concluding with why horror. So the first thing I would like to talk about is the piece's title. This American Wife. Now, This American Wife has been a joke that has made me laugh constantly since the announcement of the piece. And it has done so in a way that I have been 
I've, I've been impressed at how few folks have really sort of leaned into what this, what the title of the piece might evoke. Now, to be sure, most of the folks uh, talking about this piece are talking about its primary source of reference material, which is the Real Housewives franchise launched on Bravo in 2006, uh, the series of several spinoff series um, that all follow groups of typically um, allegedly or putatively well-heeled glamorous women in various different uh, geographic locales ranging from the Orange County and Beverly Hills and New York City and New Jersey and Atlanta and Potomac and I'm probably leaving some, oh, it's Salt Lake City. And so these different series that introduce these sort of what has become known as kind of uh, sort of reality soap television, this sort of cycle, cycle like cycle of, of domestic dramas uh, following in the tradition of the 20th century soap opera, glamorous people wearing glamorous clothes, having lots of fights and lots of drama, but done so not in a scripted mode, but in what is putatively an unscripted mode of reality television or candid reality, the genre of reality television that sort of has its origins in the early or in the early and middle 20th century where cameras go into space and follow a kind of an allegedly cinema verite approach to capturing the lives of people. The most notable productions, of course, being um, This American Family, the PBS series in the early 1970s, followed up by The Real World in the early 1990s on MTV. And in some ways, the next iteration of this tradition that has been most widespread in its influence has been The Real Housewives, which premiered on Bravo in the mid-20-aughts. So, of course, most of the commentary and, and, the, and the piece is really immersed in the worlds and the references, etc. of The Real Housewives. And yet, um, what I would also say is it uh, has another reality media referent point that is hailed by the title in a way that I think is also worth noting, and that is, of course, This American Life. This American Life being the NPR-based uh, um, uh, series, which draws upon a first-person media approach, a first-person journalist approach, where we listen to the intimate uh, casuals, the, the stylized intimacy of NPR to sort of create a sense of that somebody is telling an artfully framed version of their truth in um, in ways. And uh, This American Life is a series that premiered on 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 PBS or excuse me, on NPR stations in the middle in the middle 1990s. And then over the next five or six years, developed a kind of incremental kind of significance in the emerging digital landscape of media of the early 21st century. And indeed, because became the forerunner to the um, podcast boom of the last 10 years. And indeed, the NPR style, which of podcasting, is largely overdetermined and overinformed by the style of this American life, which is highly structured, highly, highly um, conventionalized to give you a sense of casual disclosure of just somebody speaking, of just somebody talking and pauses and ums and sort of inappropriate asides, all of those things is very carefully built to give you that sense of intimate proximity to the voice of the person speaking. And um, also that the premise of This American Life listened to, to the stories of people telling about their own lives. And sometimes it would be fiction pieces. Sometimes it would, it began, when it began, it would be fiction pieces. And sometimes it would be uh, sort of monologue presentations. And other times it would be more highly produced uh, radio segments. But um, what we do see in it is something remarkably similar to The Real Housewives is a, uh, an aesthetic, 
an aesthetic, a dominant aesthetic, which was about this idea that we were having, that technology was affording us a different kind of access to the intimate thoughts, intimate lives, and feelings and experiences of people separate from ourselves, that the media channel and channel really opened up that through this lens of reality and authenticity and realism that was nonetheless highly stylized in its aesthetics. And indeed, this high stylization of its aesthetics is something that has continued to inform the boom of the podcasting era, this idea of unfettered access to somebody's thoughts. The fact that I could, I could even do this right now is in some ways a sort of a benefit. I'm a beneficiary of the podcast boom in some ways stoked, stirred and inaugurated by the influence of this American life and its many offshoots. And so what I think is really striking is that we see that in the title, this sort of reference to the ascendant reality in the 21st century, that reality entertainment is premised upon this sort of unfettered access to the intimate thoughts of people that we do not know through these um, naturalized aesthetic frames, these highly stylized structures of how stories are are brought to us in ways that um, we have become so immersed in that we don't even know that that's what we're seeing. And that the 21st century has been the rise of these two main modes of reality television, but then I would also say reality radio or reality audio. And that's why I find so striking about the combination of these two of the, the, the topic and the title, This American Wife bridges the two. And it bridges them doing the thing that that I think uh, what is really a good signal of what's what fake friends are all about, which is really this balance of the um, high middle brow and the low middle brow. Well, it's not so much high and low, but it is sort of this high middle and low middle of taste. This idea that these are popular enough to be broadly ubiquitous and familiar, and yet at almost opposite ends of the mainstream spectrum. They're not so far high or so far low that they're out of the mainstream, but they are the opposite ends of respectable and and disreputable. And so what we have in This American Wife is a project that is literally straddling the chasm of taste in uh, the in the 21st century American aesthetic. Um, and in both of these, we in both of these modes, whether it is that kind of the self self self. Uh, proclaimed sincerity of this American wife and its many podcast offshoots, or the brazen self-aggrandizement of the Real Housewives, the word there is self. The word there is disclosure of self and the presentation of self. And how do we, um, as entertainment consumers, engage with these different modalities of, of self-presentation and the promises of the revelation of self? Because in some ways, both This American Life and Real Housewives are premised upon the promise that we will know more about these people we do not know because of this entertainment vehicle that is delivering us to the interiority of their lives. And so for that, I think that this is a big part of what fake friends are really about or doing what their progenitors like Maria Irene Fornes and Charles Ludlam were doing, which is really drawing upon all elements of the culture, all elements of the culture, not so much the only the refined, but also the disreputable and bringing them into forms in ways that make sense to the question being asked by the artist. 
And especially the question being asked by the queer artists, the artists who are, for reasons of gender or sexuality, are excluded from normativity in certain ways and in, excluded in some ways from reputable or easy access to the norm. And so what we have is these highly normative modes of this American life and of, of uh, the Real Housewives that are nonetheless become the fodder, the material, the sort of the raw source material for the collage, the bricolage, and the montage that queer artists like uh, Fake Friends will build from them. And so as I transitioned in the second movement, into the second section of what I would like to talk about, I'm going to talk briefly about the structure of the piece, because I think the structure of the piece also suggests to us what we might need to, um, what might be of interest. Um, is this this idea of how there's three what i considered what i see in my two viewings of the piece i saw at least two, three registers that were um bridged by interstitial music videos or these uh technical episodes of sort of performing scenes in uh in sort of using uh media tech or um music videos uh, a pool scene all oh, there's some interstitial bridging but the three main movements one is the beginning of this um, immersion space, right, where the the Patrick Foley and Michael Breslin and Joaquin, Joaquin Powell arrive to this house and they are immersed in ways that they do not entirely understand, nor do they entirely choose, immersed into the world where they are transformed as they enter into this house. They are immersed into the world of the real housewives. And then it's this incredible uh uh, mastery of ventriloquization as we sort of see them uh, doing what Trevor Buffone calls the embodied meme, where they become these characters and they become this mishmash of these characters. And they sometimes are playing the characters in scenes with each other, sometimes in scenes with themselves. And they're drawing upon uh, iconic line reading, iconic uh, sort of scenes and segments that have been circulated in social media and in other kind of uh, other kinds of discourses over the years and we see them moving through and they introduce us for those like myself who have a passing but not a a deep knowledge of the franchise reminding us of what the rhythms are what the vibe what the vibe is what the sense of vulnerability the sense of intimacy the sense of conflict the sense of shit stirring all of these kinds of questions and the sense of how these personas on camera are both uh, oblivious to and entirely aware of the camera all of these different threads are being sort of caught up in this in this surrogative immersion where they where, where the three performers are surrogating into the role and then they are becoming Coming the role. And then what then follows is the second passage where the light quality changes instead of it being bright whites and instead of it being bright sort of honey colored looks uh, sort of reflecting the sort of the, the honey tile, the honey marble and the sort of the grays and the reds. Uh, what we begin to see is something a little bit more uh, garish, a little bit more deconstructed, where we begin to see the cameras itself. We see the, the focus coming in and out of uh, the focus coming in and out of clarity. We see faces getting very close to the camera. We see these jump cuts to um, inexplicable episodes like dancing with, with snakes or playing with Wonder Bread. Where, but that at the same time, we are deep frontal facing disclosure. This diary room aesthetic that we can recognize from like Steven Soderbergh's Sex Lies or Videotape or John Cassavetti's prior to that or, you know, the Blair Witch Project or all these all these sort of styles where this idea of a cinema verite, this sort of jerky handheld aesthetic, suddenly gives us a more immediate sense behind what the performance is. We're letting go of the performance. We're going into this Warholian sort of like 
telling just it's raw it's messy and people are just telling the truth and in this pa passage this section of of De deconstructed disclosure, uh, we begin to see what we we begin to encounter what feels like at least um, sort of authenticity, honesty, as people tell stories from their lives about class, about gender, about uh, about their own relationships to their bodies, about their their experiences of sexual intimacy. All of these things are begun to are in, offered to us in this deconstructed disclosure, which lends to a sense after the elaborate surrogative artifice of the opening brings us into this space of like, oh, this is really real, this is really deep, and the vulnerability that these actors are presenting is something as that, that becomes almost like blood in the water uh, for a kind of a shark-like interest in the authentic and the real. And it's, and yet, of course, the second we start getting accustomed to the fact that this is now real, this is now true, there's something, there's something authentic and the tears and the feelings and the vulnerabilities are so heartrending, then we begin to sort of the ensemble begins to turn that and the deconstructed disclosure gets reconstructed as performance and possibly as a kind of violence. And so it sort of, it shifts. It shifts in this really start, striking and startling way toward a space of, um, away from the exuberant sort of encounters with violence to something more interpersonal, this question of the intimacy of the disclosure and whether or not it is real and what's going on and is this okay and all these things going on. And then we have an abrupt shift. We have an abrupt shift at the end to something more declarative where the light gets flat, the the scenes sort of step out of the diegetic reality and suddenly we're in a space where there is a declarative disclosure like a guest on a talk show kind of thing where we begin to see um, a Again, the promise of revelation and the promise that maybe we will know where the truth lies here. And that cycle, that cycle of moving from immersion to deconstruction to declaration is a really striking example for me of what the method and the technique of fake friends do, which is playing with this the temptations of implication, right? Of how are we imply how are we implicated in the pleasures of this moment? And how are we implicated not only as fake friends creating this scene, but how are we implicated in our familiarity with the reference, our willingness to play along, our delight in, in waiting for the big moment, this sort of question of the temptation of implication and how much are we the problem or part of the problem because we know what's going on. And indeed, I think what I find very striking about that is the conclusion of the piece. Um, the conclusion of the piece op uh, really does resolve in a way that I find quite striking, which is that we watch in what seems to be the, pr the final promise of truth, the final promise of truth as the camera follows uh, Joaquin Powell's character out onto the steps, the only person we see leave the space, and we see uh, Powell's shoulders hunch and buckle a little bit um, as they stride forward through the threshold. and seems as though they're crying. And as their face turns to us, we see that yes, indeed they are. And then very deftly, the tears become a smile and then it becomes laughter. And then uh, of course, what comes next is a grimace that is both laughter and smile, um, reminding us again that the um, desire for genre, genre clarity, the genre, desire of this is a comedy or this is a tragedy, of course, in the deep satiric clown mode, becomes the grimace of 
it's really on you to know what your truth is. And so there's this striking conclusion of refusal, this refusal for clarity that I think even at the end of this declarative revelation section, where um, the performers go into this really sort of terrifying space of of toxicity and that is punctuated by general shout outs to the reality of what's going on on Twitter in the same moment and all these kind of things. It's really a tight wire of terror in that moment as there's these confrontations and we're worried that we're seeing a fracture in the ensemble that has built this performance for us. We're also, so at the end of this moment, which seems to be about declaration and revelation, we see this punctuation of Joaquin Powell's exit, which reminds us that such clarity is folly and such clarity is uh, on us. Our desire for wanting to know is on us. It's neither, we can laugh or we can cry, or as Joaquin Powell's face reminds us, it's, it's, it's not to know, it's a grimace, it's, it's hard and it's scary and it's unpleasant in its way. And that's where I think that the piece really, um, hits its hits its the closest thing it offers to clarity which is that final moment where the clown looks back at the those laughing and reveals to the audience all that they have laughed at is really about them not about those on stage so with fake friends i think that there's a really sort of a deft structural understanding of what's going on in this clear arc even though none of it makes any sense none of it really um uh, nothing nothing draws forward in any particular sort of logical coherence or moment to moment beat to beat action but it uh it, the thing about their work is it works it works and it works in a way that i think is cultivating its own kind of set of practice its own audience and like the work of fornes or like the work of ladlam or like the work of the worcester group or like the work of of split bridges, it's, I uh, suspect it's going to cultivate its own following in a kind of, and its own set of peers um, around what is this work doing, this work of independent uh, digital remote performance, as especially as we move back into the uh, sort of the idea of live events continuing uh, a returning of a return to the reopening, I don't see that fake friends or groups like them is going to go are going to go away because in some ways they have stoked the fires of creative curiosity and of an audience that is very interested in how this hybridized mode of what does it mean for live and performance to live together on the internet. Um, is uh, a question that fake friends will continue to ask alongside others and so i don't think we're done with them if they choose unless they choose to be done with us but before i conclude i think the the as i mentioned at the outset there are three topics i really came away with wanting to name and one is the final one is I was astonished on my second encounter with this American wife, how much it felt like a horror piece, how much it felt like high concept horror. I don't know what I wasn't paying attention to the first time I saw it because it's everywhere. The piece arrives, the piece follows the standard tropes of of high concept horror and high concept mystery. And what it does, you know, sort of we have these folks who don't know why they're being shepherded to a particular location. And, and as they travel there, they're sort of pondering the mysteries and the uncertainties of their own lives. They arrive there, they suddenly encounter the other people that they're there with. And then what happens? We see a terrifying house, terrifyingly illuminated and a mysterious figure opening the door. 
And so indeed that presence of that mysterious figure who opens the door, the person I began to think of as the phantomic housewife, uh, the one with the big white hat and the Faye Resnick wig, um, this this sort of presence that activates the space for these folks as they do what horror, what people in horror movies do, which is they show up as if bidden to a house that they do not understand and then find themselves transformed by the mysteries that are, that were, that lay within the house and also lay within themselves. And so we have this space of arrival where they arrive and they're transformed and they are transformed. Uh, and then, but then of course the transformation comes in the moment of immersion when they step inside the space and look around and do not even recognize themselves because they've been transformed by what they see. But then in the context of that, they be, start be, becoming and behaving in ways that are both of and beyond themselves as a result of the prompts provided by the house. This is of course, straight out of the work of, of horror masters reaching back, whether we're talking about Jordan Peel more recently, or uh, sort of um, Ira Levin a couple years, a couple decades earlier, or um, Rod Serling and Alfred Hitchcock, or or really the master James Whale. All these sort of queer eyes that um, not always that are always taking this sort of twisted view of the normal, opening up the space of how do these terrifying horror scenarios reveal the mysteries of the world and also the mysteries of the world within. And this is in some ways what I see going on, especially in the second segment, the second section, because we see this immersion. And the immersion is sort of like the time warp sequence in uh, Rocky Horror, where they're suddenly in the party and in the swirl and everything's great. And then there's this moment where everything turns with a little bit of terror. And the interesting trope is every time there was a moment of deepening and quickening, a moment where the characters suddenly are more, are, are, are going, are more vulnerable and more vulnerable to the revelation. It's always cued by the passage, by the migration, the movement of the phantomic housewife. Uh, who we never see in face, we only see in frame and shoulder and hand. And so but in that second section, when we begin to see more handheld cinema verity camera style, we also move into what we might call the Blair Witch moment, this deconstructive moment of what is, of is this mystery going to be knowable? Is this found footage? Is this a kind of a terrifying trap in the spirit of Saw or in the spirit of like, who is the spectacle of horror for? And that's where in some ways in this deconstructive the deconstructive disclosures of the intimacy in the middle section become so ominous and become so terrifying because we do not know actually whose pleasure these are offered for. Is this about the space of community and of, of connection and insight and friendship, or is this the space of spectacular destruction? And so finally, I do think that then that's where the declarative section at the end opens up in some ways is because it feels for me, it's like, um, it's that crazy kids moment, like when in Scooby-Doo, when they pull the mask off and they just reveal it's the it's the terrible capitalist. Um, it's it's that moment when there's this promise of revelation, this promise that the monster is going to be shown or explained. The moment when the murderer reveals themselves and says why they've killed all the all the kids on the summer camp. Um, it's that moment when we expect clarity and what we end, end up seeing instead is a uh, kind of a disappointing origin story. That it's this space of grandiosity, 
of I single-handedly, it's the space of petty grievance, it's the space of, of uh, seeking a hero and seeking a villain, but not really understanding who's responsible for anything going on in the final performance. There was sort of a mutiny going on behind the scenes that it was unclear whether it was staged or unclear who was stoking it, who was not. But this idea that in some ways this promise of revelation is as disappointing and even more toxic and even more horrifying than anything and unsettling than anything came before is for me the grace note of the piece because in some ways it does underscore how the promise of reality uh, in performance, the promise of reality in entertainment is always one that awaits a revelation of the person behind the curtain. And as we know that once we see the person behind the curtain, all of the illusions that led to our interests become diminished, become destroyed, and, and the mirror looks back on us in ways um, that are deeply discombobulating. And again, this is a trope of, of horror, how there's this moment of where this promise of the final twist offers solution, resolution, but then it also activates uncertainty about whether or not the violence that has been depicted, whether or not the terror and the horror being displayed by these particular constellation of characters, whether or not the tort, whether or not that is going to be happening again, and whether or not it might happen again, whether or not it's still going on, whether or not it's our fault, all those questions of implication that emerge. So, so again, I'm not sure why I didn't clock that the whole piece was structured by the, by the, um, emotional undergirdings of horror. Um, perhaps I was distracted by the glitz and the glamour of the intimacy of the, of the mundane of both the real American, about uh, this American life and the real housewives. But the horror is the part that caught me off guard and caught me up and really sort of, um, for lack of a better word, was haunting. Indeed, that was the joke that was made was there was this idea of uh, a, a Twitter joke was going on that there was a Broadway, there was a producer willing to take it to Broadway and they're going to take it to the Belasco. And there was a joke that began to circulate on, twi on Twitter about the Belasco being haunted. And my response to that conversation was this show is haunted. This show is haunted by um, trauma. This show is haunted by unresolved, unengaged, and unnamed trauma, and it seeps into every gesture of the piece. And of course, because trauma is what fuels this narrative, trauma is how it manifests, and that's why horror makes sense, because horror is a way for us to comprehend the incomprehensibility of both mundane and global trauma. Trauma that defies comprehension, but also trauma that overtakes our individual ability to handle it. And so in some ways, this is, again, a reflexive and a recursive glimpse into how fake friends are. This is the piece about trauma. This is a piece about how these mansions, these narratives, these promises of intimacy, these returns to uh, do, uh, taking on these characters and how, when we take on a character do we reveal our, do we real, reveal the character or do we reveal ourselves when we take on a celebrity persona and play with it make fun with it is it because it shows who we are or is it because we are uh, learning more about it and that idea of this recursiveness of how do these traumas how do these traumas of conflict and of toxicity and of unspoken secrets and untruths how do they reverberate in our lives and how do they shape our response to um, a global trauma like we've experienced this past year. So it's a no-brainer 
that it's a horror piece, but I missed it. You might've too. I don't know. So those are my stinky thoughts on this American wife. Uh, you can look for it on demand in the coming weeks. Um, and I suspect that with much of the work of fake friends, we will continue to feel the reverberation of these early pieces as we continue to see how their work unfolds and, uh, anytime you see that a work by Frank Friends is coming to a screen near you, it's on you to find your way to it, or you will regret it. <laughs> In any case, uh, This American Wife uh, by Fake Friends, uh, a remarkable piece of the remote theater era. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, which is the unceded ancestral land of the Lenny Lenape. As I join you today, I do so in honor of the ongoing history and living culture of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people, in honor of the other indigenous caretakers of these lands and waters, and of the elders who lived here before, of the indigenous people living today, both within and beyond the sound of my voice, and of the generations yet to come. Stinky Lulu Says, the podcast began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes that were dedicated to offering reflections on theatrical performances that I had seen. Those first six episodes are still available somewhere if you go look for them on SoundCloud. The intervening series uh, seasons of episodes were dedicated to pandemic pedagogy in the spring 2020, fall 2020, and spring 2021 semesters as I uh, use the podcast as a way to respond to the unfolding crises of the COVID-19 pandemic, and also as a teaching resource for courses I was then teaching. Um, as this podcast returns today, it's unclear how and for how long this new cycle will continue. But um, my expectation, as I noted in the outset, is that this I will return to the podcast roots in a way and offer use this as a way to gather my thoughts, to capture my thoughts before they disappear about the notable productions, especially those notable remote performances that I happen to encounter over the upcoming months or so, several months. So, um, but as always, if you have thoughts about the podcast, um, and you can always have your say about what Stinky Lulu says by letting me know through the usual channels. You can find me easily on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also email me via my Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. Um, and so, uh, I think that's what we've got. That's what's happening. I'll be back when I'm back. I have no idea if this is going to be a regular thing, um, but we're going to start this new season uh, in the uncertain spirit of reopening. Who knows when we're going to be back? And in the meantime, I'll be here trying to capture my random thoughts as we do. I don't know if anybody will be listening, but I'll be talking because, as always, Stinky Lulu always has something to say. <laughs>